Hello, and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I'll begin our look at a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, specifically the first 16 chapters of this of this 300-page novel. Um, I think it's got about 50 chapters. Mark Twain certainly likes the, the short uh, chapters. So that's what we're getting here. Um, so uh, let's 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 start with a quote here. Um, quote: The most of King Arthur's British nation were slaves, pure and simple, and bore that name and wore the iron collar on their necks. And the rest were slaves, in fact, but without the name. They imagined themselves men and freemen. They called themselves so. The truth was, the nation as a body was in the world for one object and only one to grovel before the king and church and nobles. To slay for them, sweat blood for them, starve that they might be fed, work that they might play, drink misery to the dredges, that they might be happy and go naked, that they might wear silks and jewels, pay taxes, that they might be spared from paying them, be familiar all their lives with the degrading language and posturing of adulation, that they might walk in pride and think themselves the gods of the world. So there is uh, obviously the implication that we should think of all of this as a metaphor for America at the time. Um, on, on one level, I think his criticism of feudal society could be applied to Gilded Age America. And, and we know that Mark Twain had his concerns about, um, about America at the time. He, he coins the term the Gilded Age, right, in his novel. But at the same time, he's really playing with this idea that um, of the like kind of the futility of our civilization, right? The whole plot of this novel is this guy from Connecticut, this Yankee, this um, you know mechanic kind of guy. Like he's he's kind of he's got working class skills, he's got knowledge, he's an American though ideologically in every way he believes in entrepreneurship and free enterprise and freedom of religion and, and all these kinds of things and they put him in king arthur's court and he's apparently successful for a while but ultimately a failure he, he's do he dooms himself the civilization that he creates is doomed just as the civilization surrounding mark twain is doomed in a sense right it's it's built on this facade the Gilded Age, right? And, you know, I complained in the last episode, thinking about The Prince and the Pauper, that, that Mark Twain's not really yet willing to make systemic criticism in that book. It's it's very personal, right? It's like, oh, this bad thing happened to me, therefore I think it's bad. I think in this book we get a much more systemic critique of, of American civilization uh, of the later 19th century. Now, I think there are two major themes in this novel, like Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. Um, one is on technology, and, and I'll talk a little bit about that, but, but maybe later in this series, in the next couple episodes, I'll say more about that. But there's also the theme of like the nature of power. Um, real and imagined in monarchical and democratic societies. So that's really what the first 100 pages of this novel is about, is about our hero, um, Hank, a machinist, 
establishing himself essentially as an autocratic ruler um, in the time of King Arthur, which he's able to do using his knowledge. And then it's very contrived. It, it, you know, it's, it's kind of cringeworthy at times how contrived it is, like that he knew an eclipse happened in this particular year in the 6th century on a particular date forgetting the, the the calendar reform and all that stuff that would have thrown off most most people if they even if they knew the date doesn't matter i guess because i think mark twain knows it's kind of ridiculous and contrived this this rise to power because he he just wants them put there i i think in reality would get something closer to um like the what's the is it the H.G. Wells novel about the the blind men? Like the, he goes to the planet of the blind, the guy goes to the planet of the blind and thinks he can dominate them, and he gets you know he's defeated instantly. You know, that's probably what would really happen in this situation. Is he would just end up in jail as a witch and a crazy person and and die there, which was where he was heading to before he like remembered the eclipse. He was able to to use his knowledge. It's just a it's a contrivance to allow him to be in charge of this society and then begin to implement modernization reforms, right? Um, now, part of this, of course, too, is the is the colonial era, the white man's burden, the idea that Europe has this kind of mission to civilize and bring to the modern world all these other civilizations. This might be his first truly fully anti-imperialist novel. We know, of course, how anti-imperialist he'd become later in his life and his writings. But this almost works as an anti-imperialist novel as well, as well as being critical of technology. Now, this novel was written at the end of the 1880s, which was a pretty productive time for Twain. We saw the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Um, we saw him being involved in technological innovations at this time. It's just when he writes, he, he works with a typewriter and loses all the money on the typewriter. He is an entrepreneurial figure as well as a writer, and he's better as a writer than he is as an entrepreneur, but he was interested in those things. So the kinds of technocratic, elitist, kind of speculative things that he criticizes in his novels was something that really kind of piqued him. He or piqued his interest, I should say. He, he was really into that kind of stuff. He was kind of into the stuff that, our, that Hank here is into. But um, maybe we'll come back to that. All right, let's let's get into the story a little bit. Um, so we have a machinist named Hank from Connecticut, and he's transported through time. It doesn't matter how. It's like all these other utopian novels. This isn't a utopian novel, but it uses this device to just kind of snap your fingers, and our character from our time is put in a, in a world of another time. But instead of being sent to the future, as in looking backward, he is sent to the past, to the reign of King Arthur. And I'd have to say, like, everything is anachronistic here. Like, of course, the King Arthur stories are anachronistic. They were written not in the time they were set. So, like, we have people in, like, full plate armor and things that wouldn't have been around at the end of the Roman Empire. Like, the clothing, the style of defense, the style of warfare, the weaponry, it's all off, right? You know, that's just the way people remember King Arthur, right? Most King Arthur stories kind of fall into the same trap. 
I guess that they had that Clive Owen one where they tried to really set it in the fall of the Roman Empire. But that's an exception to the rule. Most people think of King Arthur in in terms of those high medieval kind of images. So he takes his he's, he's taken prisoner very quickly, um, rushing over quite a lot of plot there. But he's about to be executed, and he uses his knowledge of a solar eclipse to um, somehow he remembered it <laughs> to uh, fool the court. And the king into thinking he's a powerful wizard. And so that's first. The next step is he has to displace the most powerful person in King Arthur's court, which is Merlin. Also, he's very anxious. He's like, how dare, like, well, he's like, you know, I, I cast one spell, like the eclipse, when he's about to be executed. He's able to convince the people that he's got power, but he's got to do another trick, right? You need two to really establish power. So what he does is he basically uses the authority he's gained to put Merlin in jail. And then he says, I am going to destroy Merlin's tower on a particular day. And the way he does this is he makes, he gathers up saltpeter or whatever. I, I don't know how he got the materials for this, but he basically makes a gunpowder bomb, attaches a, now, this is the real 19th century innovation is putting up the, the lightning rod on Merlin's tower. And that is able to then destroy Merlin's tower and convince the whole population that Merlin's tricks and powers are commonplace in comparison to Hank's powers. So this allows him to become the new power behind the throne. He sets a salary for himself of 1% of any increased revenue to the kingdom. So he's basically like playing the, what's the game of the, the guy who says, do you want all the, do you want like a million grains of, million little grains of wheat? Or do you want like one doubled each on each square of the chessboard, right? And then it's, it's that kind of game. He's thinking long term. He's thinking the long game is like if I have one percent of the increased revenue of the kingdom, I'll be able to expand the revenue of the kingdom through all these modern techniques. And that's really where the novel gets interesting to me is he starts to implement these reforms very, very rapidly. For instance, there's a wonderful chapter where he introduces newspapers, and we can tell Mark Twain as being, you know, again like he did in Roughing It, and like he did a little bit in, in Innocence Broad, making fun of journalism. By writing a story, this time he's he's doing a uh, article about a tournament. One of these weekly tournaments that was taking place in King Arthur's court. He introduces industry. He introduces Sunday schools. Now, religion's a whole interesting theme here in this book because he is very much committed to religious freedom. So his biggest fear is the Roman Catholic Church, which I'm not sure how powerful it was in the 500s in England and the idea of it, right? It's, that's something that developed over time in the Middle Ages. It's like the late Roman Empire church. I think Britain was Christianized by the Romans by this point. But the idea of a Roman Catholic church, I think is not, it's again, it's anachronism. And it's a, it's a little bit anachronistic. That seems to be something that comes more in the high Middle Ages. Era of the Reformation and things like that. But he sets up Sunday schools. He, he basically kind of implants Protestant uh, theology. 
he sets up public education. He sets up a patent office to try to promote invention. And it's this also really weird. It's like he feels the need to like patent his inventions that he's making. He sets up the law to give him a right to claim the inventions. Like he's somehow fearful of people like plagiarizing or stealing his patents. But he's the only one who knows how to do this stuff. Um, but once I guess he's got education going, he's got to worry about that. <clears throat> um, so now he doesn't fully embrace a full transformation of society. We have him kind of baby stepping it. He keeps many reforms underground, literally in the case of mining. That's something that's like underground. Um, this is, um, so he sort of becomes just another wizard, like in the mind, if to the degree we can get into the mind of the people of King Arthur's court, he is just another wizard. He's just more powerful than Merlin. Um, so, and he spends quite a lot of time debunking wizards and debunking the church. And he's really obsessed with debunking irrationality when he himself is essentially playing the game of a con artist. Um, he's kind of trying to expose this, these wizards as 6th century versions of the 19th century con artists that we see in like Huck Finn. But in a way, he's doing the same sort of thing. He's like just a fancy huckster, right? He, he's got science behind him, but so would the wizards who are just like playing with chemistry and alchemy, right? They're also basing it on some kind of scientific observations, right? So if we're going to accept medieval w wizardry as a type of, uh, like a con artist, well, they, they're obviously basing their tricks off something that apparently has an effect. Um, and that's kind of what he's doing here too. But he also is like slowly changing the whole culture. Like, like one thing he does is he, like, he, sta he standardizes the taxes to make it more egalitarian, but also increase revenues. Because remember, his income comes off of the 1% the he's taken off the top of any increase in revenue, right? He's thinking the exponential growth long game here, like a 19th century investor. Like that's what a 19th century investor would do, right? I'll give you $10,000 to start the steel mill, but I need 1% of the profits. Something like that. Now, Twain is also interested here in lampooning the values of chivalry, the intelligence of the people in early medieval Europe. Um, but ultimately, this turns around on the character. So this is a, a, a trick in a way because he's making fun of them. But the fact that our character in the end ends up a loser spoiler alert to the end of the story he ends up being defeated by his own advances it's not clear whether his greater intelligence or greater greater training is that useful at the end of the day it does sort of end up like the the blind the the kingdom of the blind kind of story twain does seem to bounce back and forth though between being a bit of a technocrat and being a bit of a technophobe and I think both interpretations are fine in a way. Um, there's actually very little enduring um, about the world of King Arthur. So it's if he's corrupting a world, he's not corrupting a world that's very good. It's not very positive. It's not given a very positive gloss by Twain or our narrator here, who is Hank. Hank's the whole thing is like a frame story where someone finds this diary, you know, which re recounts all these events. Um, 
Knights are murderous, they're vulgar, they exaggerate their exploits for their own gain. They're also sort of con artists. Everyone in King Arthur's time is, is ignorant and easily tricked by Hank or others. Uh, he talks a lot about the, the adventures that knights go on. And they're really just rampaging through the countryside. Like, he, he makes fun of the, the quest for the Holy Grail stuff. Um, ogres that these knights would hunt down were actually just pigs that they just slaughtered on the street and then showed off to the ignorant peasants. Um, the thing is, Hank's not much better. Hank's also just kind of building up his reputation through, through tricks and dishonesties. But the difference is he's laying on an institutional foundation to it to replace the institutional foundations that were there when he began. That's really what's happening. I, I think where this novel becomes kind of interesting play on modernity, on nationalism, on identity, on technology comes in those aspects of the novel. To, to what degree is he just another wizard? Or is he doing something different? Um, so that kind of sets up the novel, I think, more or less. Um, he's eventually going to revisit some of the themes of The Prince and the Pauper. Like Hank and Arthur spend some time as peasants. They're sold into slavery. This is kind of a regurgitation of, of The Prince and the Pauper. So I'll maybe bring this up next time when we get to that in the plot. I, I think I kind of mostly summarized what happened in the first hundred pages or so of the story. I think the key chapter is chapter, at least the early part of the, of the story, is chapter 10, The Beginnings of Civilization, where he, he, he writes, My works show what a despot could do with the resources of a kingdom at his command. Unsuspected by this dark land, I had the civilization of the 19th century booming under its very nose. It was fenced away from the public view, and there it was, a gigantic, unassailable fact. And to be heard from it, if I had lived and had luck, there was, there it was, as sure as a fact and as substantial a fact as any serene volcano, standing innocent with its smokeless summit in the blue sky and giving no sign of the rising hell in its bowels. My schools and churches were children four years before. They were grown up now. My little shops of that day were vast factories now. Where I had a dozen trained men then, I had a thousand now. Where I had one billion, brilliant expert then, I had 50 now. I stood with my finger on the button, so to speak, ready to press it and flood the midnight world with intolerable light at any moment. But I was not going to do anything in the sudden way. That was not my policy. The people could not have stood it. And moreover, I should have had the established Roman Catholic Church on my back at, in a minute. End quote. So our narrator is trying to profit from this civilizational reform, but he's always obsessed and worried about tradition and religion coming back and and defeating him, right? So there's a lot of obsession about the church in this early days. But again, it's it's all about an American in King Arthur's court. So everything he does about progress, about rationality, about uh, the media, about democracy, education, these are all then mutations of of these American values. Everything that he's after is a mutation of some American value that he brought with him to King Arthur's court. And they do bring changes. That's why you could read this almost in a technophiliac way. Say, wow, look at all the things. This really does transform things. This is, you know, 
if you know if you fetishize some of these innovative types or these these capitalists who own these big tech companies you know you think of hank kind of in that way it's like oh he is bringing progress he's transforming the world we should praise him we should make him king we should listen to anything he says right but the whole story ultimately is it turns that on its head everything that we see here is ends up being it's not able to carry him right like first he gets enslaved and trapped and he has to kind of break his way out of that i think i'll talk about that next time but ultimately he becomes literally imprisoned by his own technology it's not king arthur's civilization that defeats him but his own civilization that he built around him so he dooms himself through his single-minded obsession with this this world now i guess i do want to think of this novel in some ways as a metaphor for for colonialism not just industrialization it's easy to see it as the story of industrialization and its faults and its weaknesses but in many ways it's also a story of of industrialization or, or sorry of colonialization colonization of the imperialist language of white man's burden because he immediately sees all these people as ignorant he sees them as um, having backward religions uh he tricks them with easy in fact we get a direct comparison at one point in the story where he says like i'm just going to do what cortez and columbus and people before me did when they tricked the 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 foolish native americans and and seized all their land and all their power I think the idea of the, the 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 eclipse thing was directly presented as a comparison to that, uh, to something that happened in Cortez's day. I don't know. Obviously, there were issues of Aztec religion in Cortez conquest and things like that, but um, I don't know if an eclipse was involved. So, um, in that sense, uh, you know what. Well, ultimately, we have a story of imperialism as just like something forced upon people and a, a, a transformation at the at the gun, right? Now, Hank, here's the thing. Hank rushes over that narrative. That's, I guess, the last thing I want to think about or talk about in this episode before I sign off and, and begin kind of finishing this novel in a future episode is Hank kind of glosses over the most important part. Like the stuff he focuses on are the are not the the actual building of the patent office or the building of the mines or the building of the factories or the schools. That stuff. He doesn't really gloss he where he doesn't really talk about that. He just glosses over. He says, like, oh, within a few years we got all this stuff. Um, after I, I, I took power. And, you know, I reformed the taxes and I got a more equitable tax distribution. Everyone paid in a little bit, but country was so much more productive that the country was richer and everyone else was richer too he presents this happy story but he downplays what it took to get there right and when we know the history of imperialism we know the history of the trauma of industrialization we know that that's not the story right so history does this all the time history at least i was written in the past but to some degree still today um tends to downplay the trauma and the horror of industrialization seeing it as essentially a good that had to come about something that was inevitable a progressive force in history 
right? And you can only really sustain that when you erase the, the history, right? And our narrator here, Hank, essentially does that. He just says, like, we went from when he became king or, like, like prime minister and the most powerful person in the kingdom to when he has, like, a uh, 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 the beginning of a modern civilization, right? What happened in between? Just good things? I don't know. I have my doubts. So, anyways, that's going to be it for now. In the next episode, I'll talk a little bit more about the plot. I think we got the big themes. I'm going to talk more about technology eventually. I'm going to say a little bit more about power, I think, as well as we get into the rest of the story. But um, I think that's it for now. Some really interesting things in this novel. And I forgot to mention, this one, unlike The Prince and the Pauper, I am find just hilarious. I think it's really funny. Uh, you know, not just the situation, but the way it's presented. And the anachronisms are presented... Um, in this really hammy way on purpose i think and it, it really comes off quite comically and, and and enjoyable this is really one of his greatest novels um, you should read it if you haven't yet so i'll see you next time thanks for listening oh,